Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. As we study the doctrine of worship out of the book of Revelation, one of the things we see in the Old Testament is that if the Jews were going to come before the Lord in worship, then they always had to be sanctified. Same thing is true in the New Testament. There has to be this sanctification or cleansing that takes place because as we go through life, we continue to sin. Sanctification experientially is based upon being in fellowship, in right relationship with God. First John 1 John 1.9 describes this as confessing our sins. We simply admit or acknowledge our sins to God, and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's important for the believer to worship God under the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. In fact, what we see in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, is the command to be filled by the means of the Spirit. And in 520, we see the results of that, part of which is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as unto the Lord. So let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, the psalmist said that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Furthermore, he said that it is in the light of thy word that we see light. It is on the basis of your word that we are able to understand the issues of the day, issues of our life, and see them as you see them, and that we're able to approach all issues of life from the divine viewpoint. Now, Father, as we come to our study of the word, we pray that we would have an attitude of genuine humility and teachability, that God the Holy Spirit may be able to teach us and inform us from the uh, eternal truths of your word that we might conform our thinking to yours. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Since we're studying the doctrine of worship, somebody gave me a little handout this morning, and this has uh, information about some special hymns that are uh, career-oriented. For example, if you're a dentist, then the hymn for you is crown him with many crowns. If you are a meteorologist, then the hymn is, There Shall Be Showers of Blessing. If you're a contractor, Alan, 
It's the church's one foundation. If you're a tailor, the hymn is holy, holy, holy. If you're a golfer, the hymn is there's a green hill far away. If you're a politician, this is a good year for this. It's standing on the promises. And since we're nearing April 15th, the IRS agent's hymn is I Surrender All. (laughs) Then for those of you who have a heavy foot, there's a hymn for those who travel at 45 miles an hour. It's God Will Take Care of You. At 65 miles an hour, it's Nearer My God to Thee. At 85 miles an hour, it's This World Is Not My Home. At 95 miles an hour, it's Lord, I'm coming home. And at 100 miles an hour, it's precious memories. (laughs) We're studying the doctrine of worship, which is a very important doctrine to study today. As I pointed out the last few weeks, there's a lot of discussion, debate over this. And there's a lot that's been written in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. There's a lot of confusion that takes place. And there's been a revolution among evangelical churches about the nature of worship in the last 30 years. And this has been generated by a shift, especially in music, that has driven this whole thing. And the terminology that's come out of this is is really not accurate. It's contemporary Christian music or contemporary Christian worship versus traditional worship. And as I've pointed out in the past, that's really a misnomer because there's good contemporary music and words that are written, but most of it isn't. And there is also bad traditional hymnody. A lot of stuff that came out of the revivalist movements in the 19th century just as self-oriented and self-absorbed and subjective as most of the uh, choruses and contemporary Christian music that comes out today. But the movement is a movement because it reflects a worldview shift that came out of the 1960s. And the 1960s are often mentioned by historians as that period when uh, America moved out of the what was called the post-Puritan period or the post-Christian period. And there's this major worldview shift, and it's affected everything in life. It's If you look around, it's why you often ask questions, why aren't things the way they were when I was a kid? It's because a massive earthquake occurred philosophically in American culture in the 1960s. And it's affected everything in life. And I pointed out last time how important it was to understand these things in terms of something that's called worldview. The Germans had a word for for it, which they called Weltanschauung. And it has to do with how a person looks at all of reality, how they interpret everything within reality. And nothing escapes worldview. There is nothing in life that is worldview neutral. And having said that last time, I received an email this week from... Uh, Major Bill Stebbins, who is up in Fort Leavenworth right now, and he is attending the uh, SAM school. It's a U.S. Army school. He went through Command and General Staff School uh, last year, and this is the School of Advanced Military Studies. And this is what he writes. He says, Sir, your last uh, lesson on Revelation on worship last week really hit home, and I would just like to add from my military perspective yet another piece of evidence. I'm currently taking the philosophy elective in this military course, and in addition to studying philosophers and logic, 
We are also being taught a new and innovative military design methodology. It is the brainchild of retired Israeli general Shimon Nave called SOD, Systemic Operational Design. Now, he sent me this this morning just to uh, add a little information to this. He said uh, Shimon Nave is a retired general, and he repeatedly states that he takes as inspiration uh, he takes his inspiration from a postmodern architects for inf- insights into his uh, systemic operational design or SOD. And he said that really clicked for me because postmodernism as a term originated in the architectural world when conventional architectural parameters and rules and conventions were thrown out for the avant-garde and bizarre. It just shows how everything plugs back together into uh, unified systems of thinking. He goes on to say in his original email, he says, so, and so how has cosmic worldview impacted strategic martial problem solving? SOD, which he wanted me to emphasize, is not accepted yet by the U.S. military. It's just in the process of being informally evaluated. They have a few little informal discussion groups that are talking about it. He says this SOD system is predicated on postmodern thought and worldview. I could go on at length, but will not do so in this particular email. The bottom line is that SOD puts the highest importance not on the content of military intelligence, not on the content or accumulation of data about the enemy, the environment, etc., but on the ongoing, quote, dialogue. See, that's a buzzword in postmodernism. It's about the dialogue. It's about the narrative, the story. It's not about the details of the story. It's just the the story. See, the, the story evokes certain emotions and certain feelings and all of that, and that's what's important. It's not the data. So you apply that uh, to military intelligence. It's not about the data. It's not about uh, boots on the ground giving you personal information. It's about the uh, narrative and the story. He says, Dr. Nava's lectures and articles repeatedly reference the patriarchs of postmodernism and deconstructionism. Names you'll remember from last year's lectures on postmodernism at the pre-trib conference. Uh, Derrida, Foucault, Rorty, Deleuze, I'm not sure how to pronounce some of these other names. I was blown away when I started hearing these names and reading the concepts posed since I had just been exposed to these postmodern charlatans at the pre-trib conference. In any event, when you state that there is nothing that escapes cosmic influence in our world, not music, not entertainment, not government, I would also like to add military strategy, operational art, tactics, and even planning to that universal category. So just like back in the 80s, the, the, the U.S. military had a New Age battalion. I know most of you didn't know that. And they were very much involved in psychics and all the para, uh, parapsychology and all of this kind of thing. But he um, wanted me again to emphasize that, that this has not been accepted or endorsed by the U.S. military it's not being utilized in Iraq, and it wasn't even utilized by, it had no impact at all on anything that Israel did last year in reference to Lebanon or its failure. In fact, the Air Force General, he says, of the IDF who led the uh, military operations into Lebanon last year uh, doesn't buy into this at all, so that wasn't a factor there. But it just reinforces the point that I am making is that worldview permeates everything that we do, and we need to be cognizant of this. And yesterday, when we had our family night, we saw an excellent little video uh, on 
engaging the culture, and that was part of uh, what the speaker was emphasizing there is how this permeates everything, and a lot of times in the world of the arts, in music, in theater, in drama, in literature, these ideas are not on the surface. They're embedded as presuppositions in the way the music is presented, in the way drama is presented, and in fact, uh, one example I like to point out is if you're living in the 1700s, no one would ever produce the kind of music that is produced in uh, 20th century, late 20th century uh, Western civilization because the worldview wasn't there to produce rock or rap or any of the other things that are there. On the other hand, tw- late 20th century Americans operating on the existential nihilistic uh, worldview of postmodernism could never produce a Bach, could never produce uh, a Mozart because it takes a different way of looking at life uh, than that. So it's not just, as we talk about these things over the next couple of weeks, it's not just about the words we sing, it's also about the music because music communicates meaning just as much as, well, not as much as, but in the same way that words do, in the same way that syntax alone communicates meaning apart from the words. When I teach grammar and syntax to uh, rookies and in Greek, I always start off with a little nonsense sentence that the dilly bags friendly miggled the rim bag. The dilly bags friendly miggled the rim bag. Now, that doesn't mean anything in terms of the words because they're nonsense words. But you know that a singular or a plural thing called dilly bags more than one of them, did something in a friendly manner, whatever that is, to something called a rim bag. See, you caught that. You knew something about what that sentence was communicating apart from the words themselves, just on the basis of the fact that you're familiar with English syntax. The same thing is true with music. Music, just in and of itself, communicates something that is distinct from uh, the word. So there's two different lines of communication there. And as I'll, what I want to point out is that music that derives from an existential uh, uh, postmodern nihilistic worldview communicates something that is at odds with uh, the words, if you put Christian words to contemporary music. Now, that is an extremely controversial statement today because in postmodernism, you can't critique anything. You can't evaluate anything. And so everything is open to interpretation and everything is on the same playing field. But as I pointed out last time, as we talked about worship, the Bible says there's right worship and there's wrong worship. And just the very fact that you have these absolute categories is in complete contradiction to everything that dominates our society, and our culture today. So just by way of review, just to bring everybody up to speed, we started off by looking at the Hebrew and Greek words. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, so I'll run through it. We dealt with it in detail in the past. The two common words in Hebrew in the Old Testament emphasized, uh, the first, avad, emphasized service to God. The second word, uh, Shacha emphasizes falling down in obedience to God, the recognition of divine authority that the creator of all things has the right to inform the creature about how all things are to be uh, understood and how all things operate 
operate together. So Shaka emphasizes this obedience, this authority orientation that's part of worship is that we are completely submissive to the revelation of God and that God, as God and as the creator of all things, can speak to everything in life. There's nothing that you can come up with in your head. There's no intellectual pursuit. There's no artistic. Remember, God created beauty. God is the author of art. He is the author of literature. He is the originator of all of these things. There's nothing we can come up with in this life that doesn't have its origin in the, the mind of God. So worship has to do with uh, subordinating everything in our thinking to God. When we get into the New Testament, the, the two wor- primary words we have for worship in the Greek emphasize the same aspects. Uh, proskuneo, which has the idea of uh, kissing or adoring someone to uh, worship them by prostrating themselves uh, to a superior. In fact, uh, Spiros Zodiety says that the ancient Oriental, especially the Persian mode of salutation between persons of equal ranks, was to kiss each other on the cheek. If one was uh, slightly higher in rank than the other, then the subordinate would uh, kiss them on the uh, excuse me, they kiss each other on the lips to begin with. If there was a slightly difference in rank, they would kiss each other on the cheek. If one was significantly inferior, then he would throw himself prostrate upon the ground, all the while throwing kissings, uh, kisses at the same time towards the superior. That's the idea in this word. It is a word that emphasizes our uh, obedience, that we fall down intellectually. We prostrate ourselves before God as our superior. Matthew 2, 2, and 11 illustrates this as the Magi came to worship the infant Lord Jesus. Uh, when they appeared in Matthew two eleven and came to the house, when they saw Mary, his mother, they fell down and worshipped him. This is not an emotional experience. This is not uh, singing. They didn't sing praise and worship hymns at this particular point. That is not what's going on. It is an attitude of adoration of God. And then they gave gifts to the infant uh, Savior. They gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That helps define and give content to the meaning of worship there. So, you know, when we take up an offering, that is part of our worship, is to present gifts to God out of a grace orientation. Sometimes there's debate today. I've done it both ways in different congregations. Some places will have a a collection box at the back and little is said or sometimes nothing is said. Sometimes we adopt practices in reaction to the overt materialism and the excessive uh, offering taking that occurs in, some, in many churches today. I've been in churches where there might be four or five different offerings. And I've seen some pretty interesting procedures that have taken place that I don't think are biblical. In reaction to that, you often have people go all the way to the other extreme, and they'll put a box in the back and never tell anybody it's even there. But if giving is an act of worship, and it's part of corporate worship, then I think taking up a collection is just a reminder that and gives the pastor an opportunity to remind people and to teach people about the principles of grace giving so that we don't forget that. And it is part of and has been part of corporate worship uh, since early in the in the Old Testament. 
The other word in the Greek New Testament is latreia, which has to do with service again, that we give ourselves to serve God in all that we are and all that we have. So then the second point was to define worship, as, and I reduced it last time to just a short sentence. Worship is the submission and subordination of the, create, of the creature to the Creator to honor and glorify Him. Now, we expanded that in a much more detailed statement. It's to submit or subordinate my opinions, preferences. Now, the reason I put those in is those are big, big watchwords in postmodernism. In postmodernism, in the way most people today who've grown up, if you're under 30, you think of, why do, why do you criticize music? Why do you criticize art? Why do you criticize anything? Because isn't that just their preferences? They like this and we like that, so why be critical? Because the Bible says that we have to evaluate things. We have to think. It's not that we're running people down. It's not that you're walking around saying, I'm right and you're all wrong. But we have to evaluate things because if we're going to worship by means of the truth, as Jesus says in John 4, then we have to know what is true, what conforms to truth, and what doesn't. So it affect, it's not just opinion. It's not just preferences. It's thinking we are to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind. That means you don't disengage your thought processes in worship. Thoughts, philosophy of life, finances, politics, emotions, relationships, attitudes, actions, time, priorities, all to the authority of God's Word. Thus, worship is a complex idea which involves a number of aspects from private prayer to public expressions of thanks. Uh, we could include offerings, uh, the singing of hymns, all of which which reinforce and reflect upon God, his person, and works. It also, it also includes bringing sacrifices and gifts all the way to personal Christian service, which may be invisible to everybody around you. Uh, worship can be both individual and corporate, and then I note that we may sometimes be emotionally stimulated by worship, but that is not the criterion of worship. It's only a byproduct. Now, that's very important because what happens sometimes is uh, because of your life circumstances or, or because of the teaching of the Word, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, there are times, and I, I think many of us have experienced this, when the Word of God hits us in a way that is very emotional. And the problem is that we tend to reverse polarities there and, oh, I really worship this morning. And now we try to recapture that emotional experience. And that becomes a criterion for defining emotion. But that is not what we see uh, when we look at things biblically. I also put this slide up here last time, just varieties of different ways people define uh, worship as experiencing God or feeling God's presence. Notice most of these kinds of definitions came out of the 60s and 70s. In fact, modern contemporary worship has its ideological, theological, doctrinal roots in the charismatic movement and the Jesus revival of the late 60s. And you can't understand, you can't even talk about modern Christian music if you're not willing to engage in an evaluation of the charismatic theology of wor- the charismatic theology of worship, but these definitions don't stack up to Scripture. Uh, we look then the third point that I made was that there are two broad categories of worship: corporate worship and individual worship. And corporate worship is when the body of believers comes together in a formal way to worship God. You have 
corporate worship in the Old Testament, when the uh, nation of Israel would come together at the uh, at the feast, uh, the annual feast that took place at, at Passover, at Pentecost, at at the uh, at Day of Atonement, at the Feast of Tabernacles, at these various feasts, when they would gather together at the at the tabernacle or at the temple, they would worship to God, worship God corporately. But before you ever get corporate worship developed in the Old Testament, there is individual worship that's developed. And we saw that in just our brief word study and passages like Genesis 22.5, Genesis 24.26, and Genesis 24.28, individual worship. And in many of these passages, it has to do more with private prayer or thanksgiving. When the servant of Abraham finds a wife for Isaac, he bows his head and worships the Lord. He didn't bow his head and break out in praise and worship. There's one other passage I wanted to point out, and that's Judges 7.15. This is a situation when Gideon is about to uh, attack the Midianites, and God is going to give him a little confirmatory uh, evidence that God's going to give him victory. And so Gideon and his servant sneak up, do a a low crawl up to a sentry post of of the enemy. And they hear these two sentries discussing a dream that one of the sentries had the night before. And the interpretation of the dream, of course, was that Israel was going to uh, defeat and destroy the armies of the Midianites the next day. And when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. Now, he's in a clandestine operation. He's in a covert situation. If he broke out singing praise and worship, he'd be dead. See, we can't read this stuff. This is the problem today is that these words have been so redefined that you go into a lot of congregations in this city today and say what I just said, I would probably get stoned. You know, they call the song leader the worship leader. That's terrible ecclesiology. The song leader isn't the worship leader. Then what's the pastor? See, all of a sudden you've reversed your priorities, and now the teaching of the word is just... Well, that's something we put up with. I remember when some, a lot of this was coming up back in the back in the eighties, and I was pastoring a church in Irving at the time, and I came to this church, and they already had a what we would call today a blended service. We sang about three choruses, which were fairly decent, and uh, not like a lot of the trite stuff that's out today, and. Uh, and usually about three hymns. I emphasized that before I came, it was less hymns. But they would sing for about 20 or 30 minutes. And one day I said, since singing is a response, and everybody says, you know, the service just lasts too long. We sing for 30 minutes, and, you know, those 45-minute messages are just too long. I said, okay, well, let's reverse things. Let me teach for an hour, and then we'll sing for 30 minutes. Oh, no, 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 no. When the, when the singing, when, when the preaching's over with, we go home. I said, ah, oh, see, you, you understand what, what we're here for. We're not here to sing. We're here to learn the word. The priority is on the teaching of the word, not on the not on the singing. But the scripture definitely emphasizes the role of music in worship. Every now and then, I I, I address this because some of you don't know this. I get questions from one side that says, "Why do we sing at all? No, let's just go to church and just study the Bible. Just have Bible class all the time. Why do we sing? Such it's a distraction. No, it's not. Get your priorities right. Get your head in the scriptures." There's, it's important. Singing hymns is not just something churches have done traditionally. It is biblical. It's the first thing Paul says is a result of the filling of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5.19. You see it historically uh, throughout the Old Testament. So 
unless we lose our place here. The third point I mentioned was there's two kinds of two categories of worship. The, the fourth point was just to look at some key Old Testament uses of worship, and that's Genesis 22:5. Uh, Genesis 4, 24, 26, and 48, the Judges 17, pass, 715 passage I just mentioned. And I also mentioned uh, last time that there were illegitimate forms of worship. When Cain brought a sacrifice that didn't fit the instructions of God, and God rejected it. So worship can't be defined by you subjectively. Well, I feel like I worshiped this morning, or I feel like I didn't worship this morning. That's not that's not biblical. You've made an idol of your own emotions. Uh, Nadab and Abihu, two sons of of Aaron, brought uh, illegitimate incense offering into the uh, tabernacle in Leviticus chapter ten, and God executed them on the spot. God takes His mandates for worship. Seriously, it's not up to us to define it. So that was the, the fourth point. And then this morning, we're looking at the fifth point, which is that corporate worship began to develop at the Exodus and at, at Mount Sinai in response to God's redemption of the nation in, at the Exodus event, the destruction of Pharaoh's army, and at Mount Sinai in response to God's Revelation. So we have these two dynamics that take place in Exodus. We have the redemption and the deliverance of the, of the Israelites at the Red Sea, and then the giving of the law. And part of the law was the ritual that had to do with how they would worship God. And God described just exactly what kind of sacrifices and offerings there were. He gave specific dates for corporate uh, national worship. He described exactly what the uh, what the uniforms of the priest would be like. He described who would qualify to be a priest and how they would be disqualified. He described who would be the high priest and gave uh, strict instructions as to his consecration and how he was to conduct his office. And when it wasn't done right, God took people's life. He was emphasizing the point that he has... Uh, he has determined what worship will be, and it's not up to us to evaluate it or to change it. So let's look at a couple of these passages. Let's start with Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15 is one of the earliest psalms. There's a Psalm 90 in the Psalms that was a psalm of Moses, but we don't know when that was written in Exodus chapter 15. This is a, a, a song, a hymn if you will, that was written by uh, Moses. Um, so it was Moses' sister. And Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord, and this is what they sang. And they did it somewhat antiphonally. The first 19 uh, verses were sung by the men. And then if you look down to verse uh, 20, where we have the song of Miriam, then Miriam sang and answered them, verse 21, uh, the chorus. So you have this antiphonal uh, singing. The people were separated. You had men on one side, women on the other with this antiphonal singing. Now, this must have been a fabulous choir because there were hundreds of thousands of people that were singing and that were involved in this, and you could hear the echo uh, off, of the, off of the hills around them. And as we read this, it gives us a sense of what the words of hymns should be like. Pay attention to this. 
because what what we need to do is is to think critically about some of the uh, about any music, any words as well as the music. Now think how the, the 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 principles that you see here. First of all, it's theocentric. It's focusing on God, who he is and what he has done in history. It's not just sort of mindless expression of oh God, how I love you. Well, that could be said of any God and any religion. There's nothing there in that statement that uh, distinguishes uh, that kind of a phrase from any other God or any other religion. It focuses on content. There is real meaning in these words. There's solid theology here. It reflects upon what God has done in history and how that relates to his character and to his plan. Verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He is my God, and I will, uh, he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. Notice that. A lot of uh, pacifists out there who don't understand that concept. This is, isn't some Old Testament uh, hill God that they picked up from the Canaanites, which is what the liberals want to uh, tell us. Incidentally, we're getting ready to come under a massive attack starting tomorrow against the bedrock of Christianity. If you haven't gotten out on the Internet this morning because you were sleeping late and didn't get your coffee, then there is going to, there, it's out there. Time Magazine's got the article that there's a claim that 27 years ago they discovered uh collection of about six or seven ossuaries in a burial chamber in outside of Jerusalem, and it identifies one as uh, Yeshua, son of Joseph, and Mary, and another Mary, and then a couple other names that they're trying to relate to uh, Jesus' brothers and claiming this is the grave of Jesus and that he really didn't rise from the dead and that this has been developed into a major documentary directed by, uh, what's his name, James, um, the guy, Cameron, who did uh, directed Titanic a few years ago. And he, this is all going to be shown on uh, Discovery Channel, A&E, Biography Channel, you know, all those channels that produce liberal, anti-Christian, Christian documentaries, you know what I'm saying. So just be forewarned. Uh, that this is coming, and uh, I don't know. I got. I was out on the internet for about an hour last night, searching various apologetics and archaeological sites to see if uh, there was any data out there to refute this yet. Remember, a couple of years ago, there was the claim that they had found uh, uh, the bone box. That's what an ossuary is. After they, put, they, the Jews would put the body in a grave. It would de- decompose because they, they wouldn't do anything to preserve it. It would decompose, and a year later they would come back, and they would collect the bones and put them into a, a box that was called an ossuary or bone box. So this, if you remember, this came out about five or six years ago that they had discovered an ossuary that said, James, the brother of Jesus. And there were a lot of people who believed that this was authentic, and it took two or three years uh, before some others who were, and, and there's nothing there was necessarily contrary to the Bible or anything like that. It was just, can we authenticate it? And it took about uh, two or three years of detailed analysis on the writing style and on ju- evaluating the the uh, stone. The, these boxes are made from stone and, and clay, 
and, and evaluating all that before they realized that this was indeed a forgery, that somebody had come in and done an excellent job of forging the phrase brother of Jesus to make it seem like it had greater value and uh, it was just a fraud to, to make some more money. Well, this fraud, and I'm sure it's a fraud, is promoted to attack the very core of Christianity, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are but fools, for we have nothing to stand on. So this is coming. Prepare yourself. We'll hear a lot about it from the uh, liberal left attacking the very foundations of Christianity. And as soon as... uh, And see, they've kept this under wraps for 27 years. They've been doing all these studies. So it will take some time, three or four years perhaps, for others to get access to their data, to evaluate it, to duplicate the tests before we have uh, any particular any particular answers. See, liberals always have a problem with biblical truth, that God is a God of war, and that is legitimate. Okay, back to our hymn, verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots, his army he's cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. I'm going to stop there in the interest of time since we have our congregational meeting today. I don't want to read through the whole thing. But you get the idea of the content that is in the words. It is rich and it is deep and it is profound. It's not repetitive. Now, there's a few psalms we can look at where you do have some repetition of one stanza that's repeated every time something else. These were sung antiphonally where one line was sung by uh, one group and another another line sung by another group. Let's go on to another passage in 1 Chronicles 23.5. Now, what happens is this is a, the first example in Exodus, while you're turning to 1 Corinthians 23. This passage in Exodus is one of the first examples of corporate worship in the Old Testament. Up to this point, it's, it's, been, it's been private. Now, you get into the time of David, and this has always fascinated me. David develops the, organiz, the organized corporate worship in terms of the music that takes place in the uh, that will take place in the uh, temple worship he could god would not let him build the temple but he knew that solomon would so he prepared for the building of the of the temple now there's no divine revelation given about the music or about that portion of the worship that was a product of man's response to god but it is done within a biblical, uh, divine viewpoint framework. God gave specific instructions on all of the ritual and how that was to take place and what the priests were to do. But then p- part of what we do as creatures in the image of God is we reflect that aspect of, of being creators ourselves. We imitate God in creativeness. But that creativeness isn't done without boundaries. There are stipulations. There, there is, there's inbounds and out-of-bounds as, as far as it goes with creation so that what we are creating should reflect what God has created. That means there's complexity to it. It reflects principles of unity and diversity. Uh, that would be true of both the music as well as the words. It's not trite. It's not trivial. It's not... It may be uh, simple, but not simplistic. It has uh, 
rich content to it and it can function at different levels. So you have, when it comes to music, you have different levels of, of harmony. One of the trends today is that you go to a lot of these contemporary church services and the rationale was, well, everybody just got their head buried in their hymnal. So we want to look at everybody. So what they do is they just put the words up on the, on an overhead or up on a projector of some type. And now nobody in the congregation has a clue what the music is. They just know what the words are, and people are just kind of imitating what they hear in the front, so they've got to put a little band up front. But nobody can, re- can read the music and see what the different parts are, different harmonies. So people are making up their harmonies. So it, it can turn into just a, uh, if you know music and appreciate good music, uh, you start hearing just a lot of uh, cacophony instead of good harmony, because nobody knows what the music actually is. So all these things kind of fit together and all flow out of a, a basic uh, basic worldview. But as those who are in the image of God, we should create in ways that reflect his creation. And we see this in First Chronicles uh, chapter 23, uh, verse 5. 1 Chronicles uh, 23, 5 describes what David did in organizing uh, temple worship. Verse verse uh, verse five says. Oh, let's go to verse four. These twenty four thousand were to look after the works of the house of the Lord. See what has happened here in First Chronicles twenty three is he is organizing the Levitical priests into how they're going to serve the Lord in the temple. So that's a, that's a principle from uh, from God that things should be done orderly because God is an orderly God. That's reflected in His creation. Verse 5, 4,000 were gatekeepers, 4,000 praised the Lord with musical instruments, which I made, said David, for the giving of praise. Verse 6, also David separated them into divisions among the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And what this goes on to describe is that there are 4,000 in this choir, and they are they have instruments. This is a huge orchestra. And they sing in, a, in various parts, in harmonies to the Lord. And so this isn't just a chant. This isn't some sort of primitive music. This is a well-structured orchestra that is singing in a way that involves practice. It involves thought. It involves effort. And it, it involves excellence. And that is what should characterize worship. It's not just coming together and saying, oh, how I love Jesus 50 times, which is what you get in a lot of uh, contemporary music. So let's just summarize with some things that we should note about, about music in the Scripture. Number one, music, like every other aspect of creation, began in the mind of God. Music began in the mind of God. Second, music preceded the creation of man, and was an integral aspect of angelic worship in eternity past. We have Job 38, 4 through 7, where God asked Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. When the morning stars, that's a term for the angels, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. You see, the angels were singing in angelic choirs uh, long before God created man. Another thing we should note is that Lucifer, prior to the fall, was a master musician. 
In Ezekiel 28.13 we read, The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. Now if you're looking at New American Standard, it says settings and sockets, and there's uh, some different translations on that. The, the word that's translated uh, timbrels here is the word tof, uh, T-O-P. And it means a hand drum or a tambourine, and it's used in that passage we just looked at in Exodus 15:20, that they sang with tambourines, and you can't find any other meaning for that. It is a musical term, as the King James translated it. And the second word is nekev, which has a, a somewhat debated meaning. It primarily means something that has been pierced, something with holes in it, and so it seems to imply some sort of musical instrument that has holes in it, probably a wind instrument, and you play various notes by uh, covering the different holes. So apparently Satan was a master musician before he fell. Now, somebody quipped one time that when Satan fell, he fell into the choir loft. And there's a lot of truth to that because the way a lot of churches are set up, the choirs almost become autonomous organizations with a president, vice president, everything, and think they run the church. So there's there's a lot of uh, situations in, historically where choirs have led revolts against the pastor. So there's uh, some justification for uh, saying that when Satan fell, he fell into the choir loft. The first mention of music, of music in the Scriptures is in Genesis 4.21, where we discover that one of the sons of Cain, one of his ancestors, his excuse me, his descendants, his name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. That is the etymological root of our term jubilation. It comes from this man's name. He had a uh, he had a brother Jabal, who was the father of all those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And he had a half-brother, Tubal-Cain, who was a developer of metallurgy. There's nothing negative about this just because he's a descendant of Cain. It was just, there's just various comments about how civilization developed in Genesis chapter 4. Now, there's two issues that we have to deal with when we talk about musical music and worship, and that is the music and the lyrics. And we're out of time, so we'll come back next time. We'll focus on how do we look at lyrics. There's very little debate. You read just about anybody, and they will say that lyrics should be theocentric and should honor and worship God. But you've got to go beneath the surface. You've got to look at the words that are actually said and and understand that, and then music as well. And I've got some interesting examples for you to show how how music is related to worldview and how it's changed over the years in relationship to a lot of other factors. Now, we have to remember that the focal point of worship is always on the Lord Jesus Christ, as we see in Revelation chapter 5, because he is the one who's worthy to redeem us. And worship focuses on who God is in terms of his character and what he has done in terms of delivering us, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things today, to be challenged about how we think about worship and how we worship you both individually and corporately. Father, we realize that you are the creator of all things and that we are to subordinate ourselves to you and to uh, put all of our thinking under the authority of Scripture and take every thought uh, captive for Christ. All of our thinking about uh, everything in life, whether it involves uh, politics or music or geography or creation or ethics or whatever it may be, everything needs to be brought under the umbrella of a biblical theocentric worldview. Father, we pray for anyone here this morning as 
unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. When you, <clears throat> when you were but a thought in the mind of God in eternity past, God had a plan to provide for your salvation. And your sin, every sin, was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. He paid that penalty for you as your substitute. And all you have to do to receive that salvation is to put your faith alone in Christ alone, to trust him, to believe that he died for you and that that is all that is necessary for your salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.